Murphy. When I was a junior in college, my brother Luke was a freshman, same college, and he wanted to go to one of these formal dances where you dress up in a tuxedo and you take a, a date. I'd never been interested in going to one of these, but hey, younger brother wants to go, I'll go with him. Problem was, I didn't have a date. So I went to a friend and I'm like, hey, I don't have a date. He said, I got, I've got a girl for you. Problem is, she's not a Christian. I'm like, it's a one-time blind date, no problem. And uh, so I, I got to go with Anna. She was the captain of the water polo team. She was from Serbia, and she was fabulous. She knew how to dance. I had never danced. She taught me how to dance. I found out I like that. And uh, she was just a ton of fun, just a uh, vibrant girl. And so we began to hang out after that. And eventually we came to the question of, should we be dating? And I was convicted, no, I shouldn't date this girl. She doesn't know Jesus, and I'm supposed to marry a Christian. So what's the point of dating uh, if we're not going to go anywhere? So I thought that I would explain this to her with a picture. And so I sat on a down, and I drew three concentric circles. And I explained the outside circle uh, represents the activities that we share. We go to the same school. We're both athletes. We like doing things together. I now know that I like to dance with you. Uh, the middle circle, Anna, this is our, our values. We're both politically conservative, and we have uh, elevate families very important to us. We share a lot of values. We're hardworking. We're driven. I said, but this inner circle represents the real core of my life, and it's Jesus. My personal relationship with Jesus Christ is the core of who I am. It's the most important thing about me. In fact, it dictates everything else about me, and Jesus is not yet the center of your life. And I want to marry a woman with whom I can share the center of my life. I want to be able to uh, be with a Christian woman and share Jesus with her. And so I don't think we should be dating. Anna was not impressed with my picture. I don't think she really understood. She certainly didn't like it, and that was it. We, we broke up. She avoided me when I would see her on campus. About a year later, though, senior year, uh, I encountered her in one of the dining halls, and she, this time she came up to talk to me, and she said, Mike, I want you to know I've been taking a class on the Bible. And one of our assignments then to read the Bible cover to cover. And I don't necessarily agree, but I just want you to know I'm starting to see where you get your ideas. <laughs> I hope that, uh, that Anna has since found Jesus and that he's at the center of her life. God did give me a woman uh, who shares Jesus. Yes, Sabrina, praise the Lord. It's worth holding out. It's worth holding out. Well, I tell you that because um, in our text today, Jesus challenges people to make him the center of their lives, to Take, remove self from the throne of your life, invite Jesus to uh, sit on the throne and be King of kings and Lord of lords to you. We're in a series on the Gospel of Mark titled Marked. We want our lives to be marked by our encounter with Jesus through the study of his life and teachings. And you get more out of this series the more you put into it. And so I hope uh, you will pick up one of the half sheets that's also back there at the information desk and uh, lists out all of the texts that we're going to preach each week, and it recommends other portions of the Gospel of Mark in order to, to read in advance of the sermon. 
Also, we have a couple of online Bible studies uh, through the Gospel of Mark. Sabrina's doing the one by the Gospel Coalition, says that it is tremendous and uh, enhancing her experience of this series. We also have journey groups. I encourage you to get into a journey group. The Christian life is meant to be done in community, and one of the places we uh, press community is in our journey groups. Some of the journey groups are actually discussing the sermon for the week. There are uh, sermon uh, study questions for you in your bulletins, so you can go and, and think more uh, deeply on the, uh, today's message, as well as fill in the blanks to keep you focused uh, this morning. Well, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Mark chapter 8. This is our text for today. We're going to be looking today at verses 27 to 38. And in this text, the disciples for the first time confess with their mouths that Jesus is the Messiah. Verse 27, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples. Now, Caesarea Philippi is the very top of Israel. I mean, it's as, it's as far uh, north as you can go. It's in the tribe of Dan, and it was, um, it was used to be called Peneus after the god Pan. And but now it's called, or at this point, it's called C, uh, Caesarea Philippi. Philippi sort of revamped the city, named it after himself and Caesar. It's a uh, has a lot of Roman influence. It was, uh, even though it's in the nation of Israel, it was known for its idolatry. Had a big temple there for Pan. It was just a pagan, a very pagan uh, center. There was a, is a giant uh, cliff face, rock face, and this huge chasm, in fact, uh, called the Gates of Hell. And out of that big chasm or cave flows a river that helps feed the Jordan River. So I find it... Um, exciting that uh, Jesus is first confessed as Messiah in a, in a stronghold of paganism, a stronghold of idolatry. And so they're on their, they're sort of on the outskirts of Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus asks the disciples, who do people say I am? Now, Jesus will shortly get to the much more important question, who do you say I am? But he starts off uh, a little softer. Hey, who, who do people say that I am? People are absolutely talking about Jesus. I mean, he is the rabbi of the day. He has been healing people, casting out demons, feeding the multitudes with just a small lunch. He's uh, walked on water, calmed the storms, and people uh, uh, taught with an authority people had not seen before. And so everybody's talking about Jesus, and they're all trying to answer this question, who is he? And there are some, some ideas some, uh, circulating, some answers circulating. And they told him, John the Baptist. Some people think you're John the Baptist. Now, that's interesting. John the Baptist had, earlier in the story, been beheaded by King Herod. But we know that Herod himself believed Jesus was John the Baptist, risen from the dead, and that terrified him. And others say Elijah. Elijah was a prophet of old who had not died but had been caught up into heaven by the chariots of fire and it was believed that he was going to return again to um, 
foretell the coming of the Messiah. And others are saying one of the prophets. It's a little ambiguous as to whether they're saying you're some other Old Testament prophet who's come back to life, or you're a prophet like one of the prophets of old who speaks with authority and has uh, the, the power of God working through them. Now, these are respectful uh, answers. These are, these are honoring, honorable answers. I mean, whoa, you're John the Baptist, back from the dead. You're Elijah. You're one of the prophets. But you know what? People can, can have very honorable-sounding answers to the question, who is Jesus, and, and those answers will lead them right to hell because it stops short of faith in Jesus as the Son of the living God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You ask your friends, hey, who is Jesus? And they will most likely have an answer for you. Most Americans have thought enough about Jesus to have an answer to that question. And it'll probably be something like he's a great he was a great moral teacher. Uh, he was a revolutionary. He was ahead of his times. He had a, uh, a, a more advanced view of women. He preached love. The world is better off because of his message. Very respectful sounding answers, but they'll say, but he's not the son of the living God. He's not alive today. He's not going to return someday to take his followers up to heaven. Verse 29, and he asked them, but who do you say I am? Now, now that's the important question. doesn't matter what other people say about Jesus. What matters is who do you say he is? Who is Jesus to you? What is your personal relationship to the Son of God? Who do you say he is? Do you say, he is my personal Lord and Savior? He's the leader of my life. He's the one I'm waiting to, for to return and take me to heaven. Who is Jesus to you? That's the most important question. And you have to answer that question. You can't avoid that, that question. Certainly not after today, because I just asked it plainly. Who do you say Jesus is? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. Now, apparently Jesus had never before uh, forced his disciples to answer this question, who, who am I? Which means he had granted them many months to observe him in action and, and learn from him. And I, you know that those disciples were chatting amongst themselves. Who is this? In fact, we, as we're reading through Mark, sometimes Mark tells us the disciples will see Jesus do something like uh, calm the sea, and then they just can't help but say, who is this? Right? Or he feeds the multitudes with just a couple loaves and fish. And like, who is this guy? Who is this? They're trying to understand. And I don't know if they had uh, said out loud to each other, he's the Messiah, but I suspect that Peter is answering on behalf of the group something that they had already concluded. You are the Christ, 
and that's just Greek for Messiah. In Greek, it's Christos. In Hebrew, it's Mashiach. But it's the same word for the anointed one, the one the prophets prophesied would come to save God's people. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Now, that's very interesting. They finally come to understand who he really is, and he says, now, be quiet. Put a lid on it. Don't tell anybody. Well, that's odd because you and I live in a day in which Jesus has instructed us, go into the entire world and tell people who I am. Make disciples. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. Proclaim loudly and broadly and boldly in the face of persecution, if necessary, that I am the Messiah. But here he's telling the disciples, shh, don't tell anybody, strictly charges them. Now, why is that? Immediately before this story, uh, there is the recounting of a healing of a blind man. And it's a very interesting uh, healing. In fact, it's perplexed me for a long time, and I think I finally understand what's going on here. The blind man is healed in two stages. Stage number one, Jesus spits on his eyes, lays his hands on him, and asks, can you see? And uh, the man says, I see people, but they look like trees walking. So, so you know, I have partial sight. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. He opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And I've always thought, what is this multi-staged healing? That's, that seems weird. Jesus always has the power to just effectively heal immediately. Well, this story is told before uh, the confession because in a similar way, the, the eyes of the disciples are being opened to who Jesus is. They are beginning to see who he really is, but only partly. And it's not until later that their eyes are opened fully and they come to understand not only is Jesus the Messiah, but they have a correct understanding of what his mission on earth was. Which is why we read in verse 31, after telling them, shh, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Yes, guys, you are right. I am the Messiah. Now let me tell you what I've come here to do. Let me tell you what my mission is and what my future entails and by default what your future involves. Now, every Jew in Israel had a, a preconceived idea of the Messiah's mission. And they were praying, God, send the Messiah soon, please. And they believed they understood what the Messiah was going to do when the Messiah showed up. The Messiah was going to kick out the Romans and restore Israel to the glory days of King David. The Messiah was going to take the throne in Jerusalem. It, Israel would become 
a mighty nation, be at peace with all the, its neighbors. There would be prosperity and peace. It was back to the good times, boys, and then some. Boy, every Jew was waiting for the Messiah, and they knew what the Messiah was going to do. Which, by the way, is why Jesus preferred to refer to himself as the Son of Man, not the Messiah. Because the, the Son of Man was a, a biblical title that didn't have much freight already in it. And so Jesus could define it the way he wanted to. Well, make no mistake, Peter and the disciples also believed that the Messiah was going to kick out the Romans and establish power in Jerusalem, which means they were pretty darn excited when they concluded Jesus is the Messiah because what did it mean for them? Pretty soon, we're going to be in Jerusalem. Jesus is on the throne, and we've, we're his inner circle. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be victory and power and prosperity and praise. I'm loving our future. And so this is one of those teachings of Jesus the disciples were not super excited about. What? He began to teach them that the Son of Man must, number one, suffer many things. Number two, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes. In other words, everyone with influence and power in Israel is going to reject Jesus. Number three, he's going to be killed. And after three days, rise again. And Mark tells us this. And he said this plainly. In other words, when Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him, it's not because he misunderstood. Jesus wasn't teaching this in parables. He told it to him clearly. It was plain. They didn't misunderstand. They just didn't like what they were hearing. But ter and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. The disciple rebuking the rabbi, the student rebuking the teacher. And what do you think that rebuke looked like? I think it went something like this. Jesus, stop all this defeatist talk. No, 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 no. We know the Bible. We know what God's will is for you. God's will is victory. Kick out the Romans. Take power. Prosperity. Come on. We've seen you calm the, the storm, feed the multitudes. You, you kick out the demons. You have power. Now let's bend some of that power toward taking control. That's what, that's what your future involves and our future involves. Victory, power, praise, prosperity. Come on. Stop this. Oh, we're going to suffer. We're going to get rejected. We're going to get killed. We don't have to do that. That's not, your, that's not what's in store for you. Apparently, the other disciples were quite close listening in. Wondering, how's this going to go? We kind of agree with Peter. Verse 33, but turning and seeing his disciples. This isn't a conversation just between Jesus and Peter. It's a conversation between Jesus and the whole group. 
And Jesus realizes what's at stake. Uh, the fundamental understanding of what the Christian life involves, both his mission and, and their Christian lives. He rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Get behind me, Satan. I don't think there's anywhere else in Scripture where human words are directly attributed to Satan. But Jesus knew what was happening. Satan was desperate to keep Jesus from the cross. Desperate to keep Jesus from being obedient to the will of the Father and thereby securing our salvation. And Peter was just being used by Satan. Why? Because he was thinking with the natural mind and not with the spiritual mind. See, then, what makes sense to the mind of man, what makes sense to our, our human brain is, hey, what's good for me is winning and prosperity and praise and pleasure and power, right? That's why the health and wealth gospel is so appealing. Hey, if you have faith in God, well, then your future will be health and wealth, prosperity, that makes sense to the human mind, and, and people are like, okay, all I got to do is be a good, faithful Christian, and I'm going to have the American dream. I'm in. Count me in. But that is not, very often, that is not God's plan for our lives. See, God's plan is often victory after you go through suffering, rejection, and death. It's the way of the cross. See, the way of the cross was God's plan for Jesus, his son, and it is God's plan for all of his other children as well. And there have been many, many, many thousands, tens upon tens of thousands of Christians who have actually died because of their commitment to Jesus Christ. And there have been countless hundreds of thousands who have endured hardship because of their commitment to Jesus Christ. And I don't think there is a Christian ever throughout history on the planet who has not at a minimum endured significant inconvenience for the sake of Jesus and the gospel. The Christian life, the normal Christian life, is the way of the cross. Verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them. Now, this is important. So, up until now, the conversation has been Jesus and the twelve. And then he says, hey, everybody, come over here. So, he starts calling the crowds. Come here, come here, I have something to tell you. In other words, what I'm about to say does not apply just to the twelve. It applies to anyone who wants to be a follower of Jesus Christ, both in that day and today. This applies to you. This applies to me. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, you want to be a Christian? You want to be a follower of Jesus? Here's the condition. Here's what it involves. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Deny himself. Same language 
that's used later when Peter denies Jesus three times before the uh, cock crows. And what's he doing there? Jesus is being interrogated, he's been arrested, and Peter is in the courtyard nearby trying to stay in touch with what's happening. And a servant says, hey, weren't you with Jesus? Aren't you one of his followers? And Peter is afraid, uh-oh, if I'm associated with Jesus, identified with Jesus, I might also get arrested. And, and so he denies it. No, I don't know what you're talking about. And I have nothing to do with him. I don't even know who this guy is. So he disassociates. He denies Jesus. And what Jesus is saying is, you need to disassociate with the self. See, right now, prior to becoming a Christian, who sits on the throne of our lives? We do. The self is just right here. We're born that way. The self sits on the throne of our lives, and the self has a will. And what happens is we check in with the self. Hey, self, what do you want me to do? You have any commands? You have any desires? Oh, yeah. And we'll talk about those. And so Jesus says you need to disassociate. You need to uh, deny yourself. It means you need to kick self off. Do it that way, too. Ha! Like that. Kick the self off, off the throne of your life. And it goes on. What we do is we then invite Jesus. Who wants to be Jesus? You're a, you, you're a good-looking Jesus. Come over here. <laughs> Chad, I'm going to invite you right up there. Jesus was a carpenter. Probably had muscles like those. So here's what we're supposed to do. Deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Take up his cross and follow me, which really means invite Jesus. Stay right there. You're going to stay there the whole time now because I can't take Jesus off the throne once we put him there. I didn't pre-think that. Sorry, just smile. So you invite Jesus to sit on the throne of your life and you check in with Jesus and you ask him, do you have desires, wills, a will for me? Absolutely. All right, you may go. Thank you. Take up his cross and follow me. Now, this is before Jesus himself went to the cross. But his hearers knew about Roman execution. The Romans put it on public display. They wanted everybody to see people. Uh, they probably all, at some point in their lives, seen somebody hanging on a cross because uh, the Romans did that very visibly to instill fear in the people. And why is it that the Romans made uh, those being executed carry the crossbeam? So you had to carry the crossbeam to the place of execution. Was it because the soldiers needed help? No, they had carts. They could have loaded the beams on a cart. No, it was to make a point. And the point was, Rome has total power here. The people of this land are so... Uh, under the authority of Rome, that even somebody who is being condemned to death will participate in his own death. That's how much control Rome has. So when Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me, he's saying, submit to my authority like that. 100% without limitation, even if Jesus' commands take you to the point of death itself. 
And so when we invite Jesus to sit on the throne of our lives, we are saying, Jesus, I am granting you 100% control over my life. And I will follow your leading even if it takes me to death itself. Certainly if it involves hardship, absolutely if it involves inconvenience. And Jesus modeled it for us. He did it first, and he says, this is what is expected. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's, it's just a, a few hours before the cross. He knows what's coming. He doesn't want to endure it. His self, his flesh is crying out, no. And so he, the Bible says he is sweating drops of blood. He's in that much uh, anguish. And he's praying to the Father, God, please take this cup from me. I don't want to go through the suffering of the cross. But not my will, but thine be done. Self has been kicked off the throne. The Father's will is on it. And what is God's will for Jesus? I want you to go to the cross and lay your life down so that others may be saved. And that's what he does. And the Bible talks about the Christians uh, sharing in the sufferings of Jesus. You see, the world is one for Christ absolutely by Christ's sacrificial death on the cross, but also by the people of God choosing to embrace suffering so the gospel will go forth. And God has called you to participate in that great calling and mission as well. And then Jesus gives four reasons why this makes sense. Because at this point, you could be saying, why in the world do I want to do this? I kind of liked having self on the throne. By the way, when, when self on the throne versus Jesus on the throne, let's tease this out a little bit, some examples. If I, if I go to self and I'm like, hey, self, how do you want me to handle my money? The self says, spend it all on you. <laughs> You know, that's what makes most sense. Yeah, but, you know, there are uh, lots of great organizations that meet, need money. There are poor people. And the self's like, yeah, but you need some stuff too. How are you going to get to retirement quickly if you're given 10% away? How are you going to make sure you get a good vacation this year? How do you even know you'll have enough to pay your bills? You don't know what the future involves. And Jesus, what does Jesus say? Hey, Jesus, how should I handle uh, money? And Jesus says, first off, recognize that it's all God's, and I've just entrusted some of it to you. You're a steward. And you know what? When you're giving to the poor, you're lending to the Lord, he'll repay you. And you know, when you're being generous, you're not really putting yourself in danger because God's going to totally provide for you. Don't stress about it. You certainly want to be investing in the mission of God because that's storing up treasure in heaven rather than treasure on earth. So, you know, think long term, man. Oh, okay. You go to Jesus with my marriage or go to self with marriage. I'm like, I'm unhappy in, our, in my marriage. What should I do, self? And self says, okay, go find somebody who's going to make you happy. Well, but I committed to a lifetime of loving. Yeah, but she's not really fulfilling her side of the bargain. She was supposed to make you happy, right? Yeah, that's right. Life's short. 
Get out there. Find somebody who's going to make you happy. Jesus says, you promised to love her for a lifetime. You love her. Yeah, but it's hard. Don't give up. God can change hearts. Pray. Go to counseling. Do what you can do. But be, be a man of your word. And uh, loving when it's difficult honors me. It's actually the love of God on display. Whew. Okay. See how it goes? God, uh, self, I'm hurt. I've been betrayed. I've, I've been slandered. And the self says, oh boy, let's get back at him. Let's strategize. Do not let them off the hook. If you let them off the hook, they'll do it again. Somebody else will take advantage of you. You've got to fight for what's yours. Protect yourself. Right? Go to Christ. He says, hey, forgive if you, as you've been forgiven. You know, uh, without, without number. Very different life, you see? When self's on the throne calling the shots, leads you to a very different way to live than when Jesus is on the throne. And then four reasons. Four reasons this makes sense. Number one, verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. He's saying serving self leads to eternal death. Serving Christ leads to eternal life. Number two. Verse 36, for what does it profit, by the way, the fours clue us into the fact that here's his reasoning. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? So imagine, imagine that you have everything the world offers. All the money, all the power, all the praise, all the privileges, all the pleasures, everything the world offers... And, or you could have your soul, the eternal you. What, what person in his right mind would say, oh, I'll take the 120-year maximum and give up all of eternity? No way. Would you exchange the pleasures, pleasures of eternity for the fleeting pleasures of this world? That's what Jesus is asking. And the answer, it should be a rhetorical answer. Of course not. Verse 37 for what can a man give in return for his soul? You cannot buy eternal life. It must be given to you. And the price is following Jesus in the way of the cross. And finally, verse 38, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Follow Jesus with as much enthusiasm as you want him to show you when he returns. You heard, ever heard people say, just don't be one of those radical Christians, you know, those, they're kind of weird. Well, I think I'd like some radical excitement when Jesus sees me, right? Follow Jesus with as much enthusiasm as we want him to show us when he returns. The way of the cross, it's not easy. It's not easy. And the flesh says, no, thank you. But it actually is the path to victory and life everlasting.